Thanks, Tony. So good morning. Uh, my name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to see you. Please do be praying for Tony and Amber and for their four girls. It is a, it, it is a tough time, uh, very stressful. Um, and so they and have them over for dinner. They're going to be here for a while. Um, uh, just really try to reach in and love our missionaries while they're here. It's a blessing to have them here. Uh, I don't know if you're aware, but we as a church, we read the Bible together. Uh, we call it community Bible reading. Actually, it's not just our church, but all of the churches in our um, denomination here in Polk County. There's about 10 of us. Uh, we're all reading the same scriptures uh, every day, one Old Testament, one New Testament chapter every day. And we just finished First and Second Timothy in that reading. And so if you're reading with us, it, it, maybe it leapt out to you that Paul keeps this phrase that Paul keeps saying over and over again to Timothy. He wants him to guard what he calls sound doctrine, sound teaching, sound words. So, you know, make sure you're in touch with sound words, he says. Guard the sound doctrine that I'm laying down for you. And it's fascinating. That word sound means healthy. It's a, it's a word that describes a, a regiment of health. And so, if you think about it, so sound doctrine. In other words, good theology is the cause of good spiritual health. Bad theology is, you know, leads to bad health spiritually. And so bad theology is like eating McDonald's for every meal. It doesn't matter how much you work out if you eat McDonald's for every meal, right? You can't outwork a bad diet, they say. Doctrine is spiritual nutrients for, for spiritual health. It's, in other words, it's not enough to just do the right thing. That's really, at the essence, not what Christianity is about. You need to know rightly. You need to know God rightly. Christianity is, is a system of doctrine that's been passed down. Uh, for, through the generations to us. And Paul's very concerned that Timothy keep the sound doctrine, the healthy teaching, the healthy, the healthy theological truths. Now, that's why this summer we are doing a series on, you ready for this? The incommunicable attributes of God. We have been made in God's image, which means we are meant to be like him, but we've said only in some ways. There are parts of God's being and person that belong to him alone. He is holy, and we're holy too. He's omnipotent, and we're not. And we've been designed to be like him in his holiness, but, we've, but, but unlike him in his omnipotence. And so we're talking about the ways that he's not like us, because it's only in recognizing his uniqueness that we can glory in him and also learn what it means to be truly human, to see our limits not as constraints, but actually as freedoms. So this morning we're going to uh, talk about this topic of God's self-existence. And unlike uh, the last few weeks, we're really just going to look at one chapter, one, one uh, kind of passage from Daniel chapter 4. So if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, you're more than welcome to do that. I'm going to read it for us. It's printed in your worship folder in the insert. It'll also be on the screen uh, behind me as I, as I go along. But this is the story of a man, King Nebuchadnezzar, and an encounter he has with the Lord. And an important lesson that he has to learn, this powerful man, the most powerful man in the whole world, uh, this, this godlike man in his authority, not only over just some small tribal people, but literally over the, the known world of the time. The most significant, the most powerful person of his time. And yet, he has to learn that he is not all that he thinks he is, that God is the one that is great. And not him. This is what the story is about. So if you follow with me, we're going to begin in verse 29 of chapter 4 of uh, the prophet Daniel. And then we're just going to read one verse 
kind of to highlight an important part of the teaching there from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So let's read together. At the end of 12 months, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, he looks out over the city and he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? <laughs> I love the response. Do you hear the response in the room? Wow. Hmm. This is not going to go well, right? You know this. Okay. Immediately, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Watch the theology that comes out of him now, okay? Verse 35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does everything according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, now, he says, here's the difference, okay? Now, this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. And then from 1 Corinthians 4, For who sees anything different in you? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This is the word of the Lord. So we want to use this passage. It's powerful, isn't it? Isn't that a powerful passage? It's, it's true of, of all of our hearts to one degree or another, I think, which is why we react the way we do to it. Uh, but we want to see, we're going to do, follow the same pattern we've been following uh, week by week here as we go through this, this text. We want to first start with God and glorifying God. And we want to see that um, what, what we're being told here about the Lord is that the Lord really is uh, the great one. God is the I am, not this man, Nebuchadnezzar, who, who begins this, this scene thinking that, it be, that is so of him. God is the I am. But secondly, we want to see that even though God is very clearly presented as the I am here, here uh, there's a part of us that, like this man, really desires to be the I am in God's place. We want to be the I am, not him. Thirdly, then, what we need to learn, the lesson we really have to learn, if we're going to really uh, be able to uh, grab a hold of our limits not, and see them not as constraints but as freedoms and a way to real life as God intends for us to live it, we have to learn to live as the I am not. And the only way to do that is there's got to be a power that comes into your life. There's got to be a power that comes in that gives you the strength to be nothing. It's hard to be nothing, isn't it? 
Who wants to be nothing? Anybody written that on a, a job resume lately? Goal, to be nothing. We don't typically think of things that way. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to follow those four. God is the I am. We desire to be the I am in his place. We need to learn to be the I am not. And we need a power to come in to help us learn how to be nothing. Those are, those are the four points of the sermon this morning. So just follow along with me as you see that outline that I've given you there. So first, let's talk about, let's talk about God. Let's begin with him because all things begin with him. And A.W. Tozer writes this. He says that God is everything and man is nothing is a basic tenet of Christian faith and devotion. That God is everything and man is nothing is a basic tenet of Christian faith and devotion. Now that's a hard statement to swallow, isn't it? But it's true. And it is true because God has created all things and he himself is uncreated. He is the uncaused cause of everything. He is the unmoved mover. He did not begin to be. He simply always has been. He is the creator of all things. He holds all things together. But before he created everything we know, he was and he existed in completeness. We, we learned the very first verse. This is the very first lesson that our scriptures teach us, isn't it? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was God. And that's what we mean when we talk about his self-existence. He has life in himself. That's John 5, 26. That's a really important phrase. Life in himself. In other words, no one gave him life. No one or nothing caused him to be. It is part of his nature. And therefore, he is the fountain of all life. He, uh, you and I have life, but we do not have life in ourselves. We have life as a gift from him. So Paul says uh, to the Greek philosophers in, in Acts chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. We have life in him. He is life in himself. And that's the difference. And so just a couple of things here, just, just to kind of unpack this a little bit. Uh, what this means is first that God is from himself. He is self-caused. Or he actually is not even self-caused. He has no cause. And if that's true, then secondly, then that means that we are derivative of him. You and I are derivative of him. So A.W. Tozer goes on to say, man for all his genius is but an echo of the original voice, a reflection of the uncreated light. As a sunbeam perishes when cut off from the sun, so man apart from God would pass back into the void of nothingness from which he first leaped at the creative call. Man is a created being, he goes on, a derived and contingent self who, of himself, possesses nothing but is dependent each moment for his existence upon the one who created him. The fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. The fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. Now, there's some deductions we can make from this. If that's true, therefore, God is everything and man is nothing. Amen? We can agree with that. Therefore, God is the creator of all things. Therefore, he is the rightful owner of all that he has made, and therefore all that we possess comes from him as a gift. Now, in Exodus chapter 3, you can turn there if you want to, but I'll just kind of tell you the story. God revealed his name to Moses, if you remember that story at the burning bush, and Moses is being sent to Israel to deliver God's people from slavery there, and he says, you know, when they ask me who's sending me, what do I tell them? And so the Lord gives him a name. And the name, if you remember there, is he says, tell them I am who I am. That's my name. That's who I am. I am who I am. Or simply, it gets reduced, I am. Right? Think about that. God says, this is my name. I am. Not I was. 
not I will be. It's a form of the Hebrew verb to be. It means that he has no beginning or end, that he has no other cause, that he depends on nothing for his, his existence in life, that everything, in fact, depends upon him. And notice that it's a name that we're given there, not a title. And that's important, too. He wants us to know him to be like this. this it's personal. This is his covenant name, also. It's the name by which he binds himself to his people as the Lord. And so God's name is not, I am who you want me to be. It is, I am who I am. Meaning, I don't exist for you, you exist for me. God says, my life doesn't revolve around you, yours has to revolve around me. I don't get life from you, like the other gods. We're going to talk about that next week. I don't get life from you. You have to get life from me. I mean, zero contingency. Absolute sovereignty. And so for us, the answer to every why is not an answer. It is the name. I am who I am. Why, God? Why? Why this? What are you doing? What's going on? Why? I am who I am. Okay, that's who God is. Now, that's what we mean by self-existence. Now, secondly, sinfully, we don't like to think of ourselves as derivative. We would rather, we're much more comfortable with the idea that we can somehow be the I am of our lives. And you see this, this is really Daniel chapter 4. Okay, this text about this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, this most powerful monarch in the world at the time on the roof of his palace, looking out over the great city of Babylon, which, by the way, was one of the seven wonders of the world, the hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. I mean, it was the, a technological marvel in the world. This is one of the greatest cities. This is one of the greatest feats that has ever been accomplished by any ruler or king or emperor in the history of the world. And here he is on the roof of his palace, and he looks out and he says, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And that scene is a picture of every one of our hearts as we look out over our lives, over our families, over our jobs, as we check in on the bank account, whatever it might be, and we have the same kind of moment. But before, you know, before we get to all the bad news about what that meant for him and what it means for us, let's see what's good about King Nebuchadnezzar here, because there is something good, and that is that if we were made in the image of the Creator, then that means that we were made to create. There's something right about what Nebuchadnezzar's done here, and, what, and even, and even what, what his thought process is. It goes really, really wrong, but there's, there's a seed of something really right. So Jen Wilkin, who I've been telling you about her book, and some of you have not followed my advice. You've bought it, and you're reading it. It makes me very self-conscious, okay? Carter Wampler. <laughs> Buy it, but don't read it. Not until we're done. Here's what she says, because we're going to quote from her a lot. Here's what she says. She says, a gifted musician creates arrangements of notes that make beautiful music. A gifted poet creates arrangements of words that elevate our emotions. A gifted chef creates arrangements of flavor that make delicious food. A gifted artist creates arrangements of colors that make beautiful pictures. We all take piles of data and turn them into pie charts. We take collections of metal and turn them into machines. We take eggs and butter and cheese and onion and turn them into an omelet. We all create. We're not creation optional, she says. So we were made to create. So what's the problem? I mean, what, 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 if that's a good thing, what went wrong? What happened here? How did this get to be so bad with this, with this king? And so Jen Wilkin goes on to say this. She says, but 
Here's the thing we have to realize. We're all hacks. Arrangers of someone else's palette of colors, wavelengths, and building blocks. The most creative human you know, she writes, is a ripoff artist, shamefully, even gleefully, rearranging and recombining existing materials into new forms. No one has ever really, truly created anything. No one that is except God. However, we convince ourselves that we are like him in his ability to create something from nothing. We take the gifts God has given us to steward and we use them to fuel our, quote, creator complex, employing them to build our own kingdoms instead of his. We, and then we look at the little kingdoms we have brought into being and we assert ownership over them. I made this from nothing, we say. I gave this life. That's a pretty good description of King Nebuchadnezzar in this scene in Daniel 4. We could shorten his speech to the most basic point. Look at this great Babylon which I've made by my power for the glory of my might. We could shorten it to say, here is Nebuchadnezzar on the roof of his palace saying, I am who I am. A.W. Tozer says, sin has many manifestations, but its essence is one and here it is, a moral being created to worship before the throne of God sits on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declares, I am. Let me say that again, because that's important. He says, this is, this is, he says, this is sin in its concentrated essence. This is sin, uh, the thing that's ruining all of our lives in its concentrated essence. It is a moral being created to worship before the throne of God, instead sitting on the throne of his own selfhood and from that elevated position declaring, I am. Sin in its concentrated essence is seeing life as a product of my creative will and acting as rightful owner of things which in truth are gifts that have been given to me for me to steward. Sin in its concentrated essence is looking at your life and saying, I did that. I did it. And because I did it, I'm do it. Life is by me and life is for me. That's what he says in, in verse 30 of chapter 4, right? He says, Babylon, which I built by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty, by me, for me. Isn't that what he says? And that's exactly how we look. We look at our lives and we said, I did that. I did it and I'm doing it. It's by me. And because it's by me, then it's for me. So human pride looks at all of the good things in your life and it says, that's by me. I did it. And so if things go well, you think it's because I worked harder than other people or I worked smarter than other people. And therefore, you know, I deserve all of the good things that come my way. So pride looks at life with a deep sense of owedness. We take credit for stuff that really is God's doing and not ours. And we claim to be the makers of our lives. We claim to be the author of what is really a gift, if we were to be honest for one moment. I remember uh, a few years ago... Uh, Then-President Obama made comments, and I don't remember in what context exactly, to the effect that if you had a successful business, uh, you know, that you didn't build it on your own without help. And, I mean, and it, it, like, people freaked out. He, you know, he said nobody, nobody gets wealthy or successful on their own. And I, and I just remember it was like a nuclear reactor among my conservative Christian friends just going bonkers about it. And I'll be honest, it really confused me because I realized 
the silly partisanship of the comment, and I don't necessarily agree with the politics that he was driving at, but I was bothered by the response, not from the right, because they have their politics too, but from Christian people whose ideology ultimately transcends both, both left and right, I think. And surely, uh, surely, you agree with the president or don't agree with him, surely you can hear that statement and say, that is true, right? I mean, isn't that exactly what Paul says? What do you have that you did not receive? Put the politics aside. That's not, that's not the issue. Do we believe that or do we not believe that? What do you have that you did not receive, Paul says? I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a question that has an answer built in, right? What's the answer? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. We are not self-made. And the Lord issues a warning in the scriptures that we would do well to heed, I think. He says, I will not yield my glory to another. I mean, it's just this absolute statement. And thus we see in this story how God reacts to such claims. If we, if we deny the sheer reality that if we have a business, of course we've worked hard. Uh, but there are a lot of things that have gone our way. We were, re- we were born in a country we didn't decide to be born in. We were re- born in families that we weren't, you know, necessarily we didn't have any say and either we were born with gifts and things that God has given us other people have built into our lives we are the product of lots of wonderful things that have happened to us and when we deny all of that and say you know what my life I did it I'm do it that's what's really true you see how the Lord responds and it's not very favorably God reacts in, in, in this way. Look what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar here. Do you see God comes down in judgment upon the way he thinks about his life. And what happens? He goes insane by God's hand. He becomes like an animal, we're told. He, he went out into the wilderness and he ate grass and he began to look at the wild, like a wild beast, verse 33. And there's a lesson here in this story. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, and the lesson is something like this, that the kind of pride that you see in this man defaces our humanity. God was saying to this king, Because you insisted on becoming more than I made you to be, you're going to become less than I made you to be. Because you desire to be more than a man, you will become less than a man. The story is a parable. And the parable's teaching is this, that as we grasp for God-like power and authority, we don't become more like God, we become less than human. Because to be human is to be derivative. To be small. To be limited to be broken, to be barely hanging on, to be struggling to get out of your pajamas in the morning and dealing with creaky joints and a sore conscience, but lifting up your eyes to the maker for mercy and strength. That's what it means to be human, right? Anybody there today? You know, not just me, good. That's what it means to be human. Not not King Nebuchadnezzar's boasting over his life. Look what I've done. It is sheer, wild-eyed, grass-eating madness to ascribe to ourselves the role of maker. Yet we do it all the time. And here's the warning. It'll drive you mad. Instead, what we need to do is we need to learn to grasp at this what I've called gracious humanness. We need to be confessing and embracing our limits, not grasping for self-existence like uh, that which belongs to God alone. This king, he eventually had his sanity restored to him. Do you see, if you go on in the story, his reason came back, he says. He, he got in touch with reality. And that's what we see in the latter parts in the second paragraph there is, is he really, this, this kind of understanding of the way things work really kind of invaded in, in, into his heart. 
He got back in touch with reality. Well, what reality? Well, look there in verses 34 through 37. Let's just read it together again. He says, uh, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In other words, only God can say, I am who I am. We humans, and here's what he learned, we humans must confess, I am because he is. What does that look like on the ground? I think there are a couple of things. And the first is, it means that I, I have to admit that I'm not my own, that I don't belong to myself, that I don't have life in myself. I, I'm derivative, like I said. I, if I didn't create myself, then I don't belong to myself. I don't define myself, or anything else for that matter, to be honest. The one who created us knows how we work because he made us, and he knows what's best for us. So when God comes with his commands and he says, do this, he's not being a killjoy. He's trying to lead us to life. But when we set the rules for our lives, we are claiming to be self-existent. We are claiming to be the I am. And so one limit, then, that we have to learn to live with is that we are created, not self-made. And therefore, we don't get to define our own truth. Our identity, unlike what, you know, what we're told in our culture, is not a creative expression. I am not the I am. I am because he is. And so I'm not my own. I don't, I don't own myself, and, and if I'm not my own, then I don't own anything else either, which means I'm a steward and not a maker of the things in my life. Look, listen again to Paul. What do you have that you did not receive? This is what I'm going to do. You know, my, you know what my least favorite, this, I'm telling on myself, I probably shouldn't do this, but y'all love it when I say that, don't you? My least favorite thing, my, one of my least, my pet peeves is at Thanksgiving when we got to go around the room and everybody's got to say something they're thankful for. I hate that. I just, I feel so good to say that out loud. Like, I hate it. So literally, this last Thanksgiving, I just refused to say anything. I was like, nope, no, I'm not participating because I'm just rude, I guess. But here's what I think we ought to do. Here's the game I think we ought to play at Thanksgiving. This is what I think you ought to do next, next, next Thanksgiving. Instead of saying, okay, everybody name one thing they're thinking. Family, Jesus, food. Oh, my God, Lord. <laughs> Sorry. Here's the game I think we ought to play. This would be so much more fun. Wouldn't this be more fun? Name one thing that's in your life that's not a gift. Name one thing that's not a gift. That would be a whole lot more fun. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? See, that, that's, that's, that's where we get on the ground with this. Nebuchadnezzar boasted because he forgot he was a steward and started acting like the maker of his life. Now, let me just work through this uh, through a few examples, okay? Just, just a few examples with our families. Let's talk about family for a minute. We can look out over our families and we can say, I gave this life, right? So if you're a parent, you know you've done it. When you're mad at your kid, I brought you into this old Bill Cosby thing. I brought you into this world, and I could take you out of this world, right? If you're a parent, you gave life to your children, right? But listen to me. That doesn't make you their maker. 
You're not the maker of your kids' lives. I was listening to a podcast the other day that was describing how employers are now having to deal with parental involvement in the workplace with their 20-something employees. Parents coming to interviews with their kids. Parents coming to interviews in the place of their kids. Parents calling supervisors to complain about the way their kids are being treated at work. Listen, we are not the makers of our kids' lives. We are stewards, which means our starting place is to say, these kids don't belong to me. I don't dictate their schedule. I don't decide their future. It's not up to me to make sure everything goes right for them. There's a story that's being written for them, but I'm not the author of the story. And I don't even know the twists and turns or the ending that's supposed to happen. And so my job is to figure out what God is doing and to help them towards that. And a lot of the time, you know what that means? It means that I have to get out of the way and let God do what he wants to do. Not insert myself. I'm not the maker of their lives. I'm a steward. And that means I don't take credit when they get, get it right. And I don't wear all the blame when they screw it up. Right? But what, what we do sometimes with our families, we look at our kids and we say, these kids are by me and they're for me. And that's being an owner. A steward says, no, these kids are by God and they're for God. They're a wonderful gift. And man, it's a huge responsibility, isn't it? But I'm not enough. We do it with our jobs, too. We can look out over our jobs and we think, you know, is this thing not great that I've built by my power, by my smarts, by my long hours? And that's acting like a maker. So here, I'm telling myself, okay, we do this in church, too, believe it or not. If you ever think this company would be in serious trouble without me, or if you ever think I could fix everything that's wrong with this place, or... Or if you have an employee that's struggling and you think the solution would be more meetings with you because you could fix them. This job is by me and for me. Being a steward means you say, I'm here to glorify God. I'm not the one who makes everything go. I'm here to serve. I can take the lead on a project. I can provide support. I can be the upfront guy. I can be the behind the scenes guy wherever I'm needed the most. I can work hard. I can work 40 or 50 or maybe even 60 hours a week, but probably not 70 or 80 and at the expense of my family because that's acting like the I am and ignoring your limits. But we do it there too, but we also, we do it with our finances. We can look over the bank account statement. We can say, I made this from nothing. This is mine. This money is by me and therefore it's for me and so I can spend it however I want. Being a steward instead, of course, means recognizing that whatever means we have, they are by God and for God. Our, our money and our material possessions don't belong to us. They've been given to us by God to be invested and used for his gain. And so how do I use all that God has given me, which is all I have, for his sake because it's all his? How do I use everything he's given me, which, by the way, is everything I have, for his sake, because it's all his to begin with. It all belongs to him. That's, that's the way a steward thinks. Right? My family, my job, my money, whatever it might be, nothing is by me or for me. That's what we're after. King Nebuchadnezzar went from boasting to praise. Do you notice that? He starts with boasting. He ends with praise. That's really significant. He went from seeing himself as the one giving life to everything and everyone around him to seeing himself as nothing and in great need of mercy. 
And so that's the last thing, really quick, as we wrap up. Then if that is really where the Lord desires us to be, is in this place of nothingness, then what's the power that can come to help us be nothing? How do we get the humility we need to stop acting like owners and start acting like stewards with ourselves and with others and with our stuff? Uh, and isn't that the lesson that this king had to learn? He says, verse 37, those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. So again, at the beginning of the story there, he's boasting. And at the end, he is praising. He's giving God glory. He's giving God credit. He's taking the credit for himself. He transitions from that to now giving God the credit because he's been humbled. Now, what happened? What did he learn? And we could boil it down to these two things. He learned that he didn't deserve anything, that he was not due anything because he had not done anything. So he says, if you notice there, he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing. Now, that's much different from, look at this city that I built by my mighty power for the glory of my name. He says, no, now I understand, even in all the things that I've accomplished, even this seven, one of the seven wonders of the world, it's nothing. Really, before the almighty God, the great I am, it's absolutely nothing. And that's, he had to learn. He had to learn that he didn't deserve anything. And the second thing he had to learn was that he was the object of great mercy. That everything he thought was his by right before, he says, now it's coming back to me, but I understand now, before I thought I deserved it, before I thought it was kind of my due because of the leadership that I had provided, right? Now I understand that everything that's coming back to me from God's hand is a gift. With God, there are no wages. Everything's gift. There's not a single thing in my life that I enjoy that isn't a gift. And that's where we have to get to. If we deserve anything from God, it's judgment, and yet we get mercy. And you've got to have a moment like this. Every person who becomes a Christian has to have a moment like this, where you realize that, that you don't deserve anything from God but judgment, because the end of all of your doing is still nothing. That something that you're building is really nothing. And therefore, God doesn't owe you anything, and the truth is that you owe him everything. You and I, we, we are not, I hate to break it to you, okay? We're not the I am. We want to be. Man, do we want to be. But we're not. But Jesus Christ, as he made himself known, particularly in the Gospel of John, everywhere Jesus went, he kept saying things like, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. And the commentators all say, see, it wasn't just that he was talking, you know, the first part of those statements are just as significant as the last part of the statements. Jesus was saying, you're not the I am, but I am, I am. The Father is not the only one with life in himself. Jesus said in John 5 that he too has life in himself. And yet, here's what, here's what we learn in the gospel, okay? Isn't this the great news of the gospel of Jesus? That this word, through whom everything was made, the fountain of all life, the one who had life in himself, we're told, laid down his life, cut off from the land of the living, dying on the cross for our sins and being raised on the third day. Now, why, why would he do that? And the answer the Bible gives us is because it was the only way that he could give us life. So there's only one way to get life. You have to receive it. That's the only way to peace and joy and righteousness and power you're not the maker of any of that. I'm not the maker of any of that. None of us are. You have to receive it as a gift. It's, it's a gift. It's a grace. It is derivative. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life that is not given by him. There is no righteousness that doesn't come as a gift from him. There is no happiness apart from him. And when you see that, 
when you see that, when that starts to kind of seep into your heart, you can stop trying so hard to be the I am. You can stop trying to be the maker with your kids and at work and so forth, and you can just take a breath and be nothing. Doesn't that sound great? For some of us, it sounds like a nightmare. But for some, doesn't if you're tired, it sounds great, doesn't it? Yeah, thanks. We can just be nothing. But here's the, here's the neat thing. You know what? When you get to that place where you, just, where, where you really just realize all there is is nothingness, that's when the good stuff starts happening. Martin Luther said, it's one of my favorite quotes. He said, God creates out of nothing. And therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing of him. Do you feel your nothingness this morning? Listen, that's what it means to be human. That's okay. That's, that's good. You're on the right track. That's how you're supposed to feel. Has your hope for a relationship or a situation dwindled to nothing? That's okay, too. That's the doorstep to faith. Reality is crashing in on you, and that's a great thing. What's happening is you're realizing you're not the a- I am, and that's, that's a much better place to be to realize I, I am not the I am, but God is. See, we, we cannot create hope where there's hopelessness. We cannot create love where there's lovelessness. We cannot create faith in our children. We can't create repentance in a hard heart. We can't breathe life into deadness. We can't fix broken relationships. But God can. And in creation, he created something from nothing. And he rejoices to continue that work in human hearts even today. His name, his name is I am. My name, (laughs) my name is I am not. He is the I am, I am the I am not. And that's a really good thing. You believe that? Even if you don't, pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Let's pray together, will you? Pray with me. So, Father, uh, we, want to, <clears throat> we want to end where we see this great man ending. Uh, I, I imagine for most of us, and even in myself, I can feel the way I came into this room boasting this morning and feeling good because of the size of the crowd and because of the, the, this whole thing, uh, you know, that I get to be a part of, this, this neat church. Um, that I get to pastor, and it was so easy to, to come boasting, but we don't want to leave boasting. We want to leave uh, praising because we've been humbled. And, and I confess, when I bump up against the reality that I am not, it does not create relief in me. It creates anxiety and depression and unbelief and fear because I am absolutely committed to the idea that it is my power and my smarts and my hard work that makes my life go and that, make, and that gives life to everybody and everything around me. Oh, forgive me. What foolishness. What a dumb way to live. To think that I have it in me to have power enough to sustain not only myself but others and, and things around me. Oh, Lord, forgive me for rivaling you, trying to replace you in my own heart. I, I am the I not. I am not. That is my confession. I am not. And so we turn our hearts to you, the I am, 
and we worship you now. As we do so, would you heal us of our unbelief and our sin? Would you, instead of the I am not moment causing anxiety and depression and crashing in us, would it, would it bring relief and joy and worship? Because we know that this great one is the one who died for our sins. Your great heart is for us. We have no reason to fear but to put ourselves in your hands because when we do that, that's when stuff starts to happen. And so come now and help us do that. Lead us to repentance and faith in these moments as we sing together and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I can feel, I can feel a sense of wonder and worship in the room. I'm grateful for that. And so I don't know, uh, as we send you now, what you're being sent to. I don't know if it's wondering how you're going to get back to your pets and your things in a country that you're not in at the moment. Or whether it's you're wondering, is my kid going to become a fully functional adult when they grow up? And how is that going to happen? Or uh, you look at your marriage and think, I don't know if I have the energy to keep going. Whatever it is, I do know this. Uh, what, the thing you have to understand is whatever you need to happen, you are not the I am. You are the I am not. But he is the I am. And here's what this benediction means, that this great God who possesses life in himself, all power and all glory, his heart is great towards you, and he promises to, as you go, to go with you. In fact, not just to go with you, but whatever you go, he has sent you there. And if he has sent you, he will not leave you without all the help and support that you need. Because of all the work that Jesus did in dying on the cross for you, you can be confident of his meeting you at your place of need with all the power and strength and resourcing uh, that you need. That's what these words mean. So receive these words as the confession that you are not the I am, but he is. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.